Welcome to Better Angels, the podcast for women creating change. I'm Susan Ferry Price. Each week I have a conversation with an entrepreneur, activist, author, or other visionary woman who is helping make our world a little better. Thanks for joining us. By now, many of us know far more than we ever planned to about at-home medical testing. But for those tests that women routinely need, they're sticks. Styx offers discreet and effective at-home tests for pregnancy, ovulation, UTIs, and more. Styx products are clinically tested and competitively priced. And Styx has a great community and education resources to help you with a little peace of mind during stressful times. Learn more at GetStix.co. I admit I am not the best clothes shopper. I don't have any patience, and I tend to just go into a store or go online, try to find something that might fit, something I like. But over the years, and learning more about climate issues and women's issues and talking to entrepreneurs, I really have been trying to do better. That led me to Remake. Remake is a nonprofit which, among many other things, puts out a fashion accountability report that looks at a lot of brands and what they're doing to address climate justice, fair pay, and other really crucial topics in the $3 trillion clothing industry. I invited Remake's founder and CEO, Aisha Barenblatt, on the podcast today to talk with us about what Remake is doing and how we can all take part in making the industry more just, more transparent, and more sustainable. Aisha has been in in the industry for more than 15 years, promoting social justice and sustainability, and working to protect the dignity and rights of the women that make our clothes. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Aisha. This is such a complex topic. And reading your work and following you now, I see a lot of the things I thought about it were also a little bit off base or incorrect or incomplete at the very least. So how about we start with you sort of framing where we are right now? Yeah. So, you know, I have a lot of empathy for people who even express an interest in ethical fashion or just fashion or sustainable fashion to pick up a lot of confusion, right? Because when it comes to what does sustainable fashion even mean, especially when the greenwashing machine has taken over and a lot of the big fast fashion brands have co-opted the terminology and customer interest, what you pick up is a lot of confusion, right? It's like, is organic a good thing? Well, not if it's made with forced labor, you know, is um, uh, paying a minimum wage a good thing? Well, not really, because it doesn't quite come to a living wage. And so, you know, for us at Remake, we really try to simplify and make this work work more accessible. So anybody, whether a fashion insider, a lover of fashion, or just someone who wears clothes, right, can really have an understanding of what's the issues at hand. And more importantly, what can I do about it? And so, you know, to put some of this in context, fashion is a $3 trillion industry, right? This is an industry that's not poor, it's profitable, in many ways has roared back post pandemic and what have you. And yet, This is an industry that is built on the backs of women, predominantly women of color from my part of the world, uh, without really paying fair pay. And so for us at Remake, when we think about 
fashion, sustainable fashion, it really is two things. You know, our mission is to educate and advocate to fight for fair wages and climate justice. And so I think if we just look at those two areas, we get to what ethical, sustainable fashion really is. You know, today fashion has an outside, outsized impact on our planet. And so what we have to really get our arms around is fashion's climate impacts, but do it with a justice lens. And secondly, here's an industry that despite making a lot of money, has a few people up top, mostly white men, that take a lot of that profitability that doesn't really trickle down and you don't have dignity of pay. You know, so here's, I think, some stats to put that in context, right? Today, we produce 100 billion garments of clothes annually, and we're growing that number 3% per year. What we know of that 100 billion units, like if you think about, oh my God, we're making 100 billion units of clothes, there's not even 8 billion people on the planet. Two-thirds of that clothing is made from plastic fuel, fossil fuels, right, which is essentially plastic. So we know we're making too much. And we're making it with fossil fuel and plastic. And we know that most of that is going to end up in a landfill. And especially if it is got fuel, fossil fuel in it, it's going to sit in landfill for hundreds of years. And so from an environmental standpoint, you know, fashion obviously often isn't on our radar. But yet this is an industry that emits upwards of four to eight percent of carbon emissions globally. And so to put that number in context, you know, that emission is more than France, Germany, and the United Kingdom's economies combined. So, you know, the way we make our clothes too much, too fast, for too little money has a staggering impact on the planet. If we look at the human rights side, you know, we know that 93% of the fashion brands that we rate, and this is anywhere from luxury to high street to fast fashion, 93% of the world's fashion brands don't pay garment makers who are fashion's most essential workers enough money to live on. A fashion CEO earns more in four days than a Bangladeshi worker earns in a lifetime. And therein lies really the dichotomy of this is an industry that is built on oppression, right? It doesn't pay enough for this high skilled work. And so to break it down just for an average person says, what is sustainable fashion? Should I care about it? You know, I love to say, do you care about women's rights? Do you care about climate impacts? And if the answer is yes to one or both of those, then this is a movement for you. It is interesting how the wage aspect is I think has been very overshadowed by, I think people are becoming more aware and you can, you can let me know if that's true about the climate aspects of it, but we don't have that much insight into that aspect of it. I completely agree with you. And I think part of this is really, you know, the industry is operating exactly how it's set up to be, which is that supply chains are opaque, they're fragmented, they're hidden. And, you know, fashion supply chain is often running places where labor laws are weak and enforcement is even weaker. I love to say that fashion loves dictators. You know, that's the only reason most of our fashion is made in China. And, you know, the minute... It became too expensive to make at least cheap fast fashion in China. There was a rush to Bangladesh and Cambodia. And now we are off in Myanmar. And, you know, if you look at Ethiopia, which is one of the lowest paying wages in the world. And so if you look across 
all of the places where cut so is at least, you know, what do these countries have in common? Well, uh, not a very functioning trade union community, uh, not a lot of organized labor, uh, and either dictators in charge or sort of some realm of a very corrupt government. And so the only reason for faction to be in these locations is not because of infrastructure, um, it's frankly to find the cheapest wages. And so a lot of fashion brands today are essentially glorified marketeers, right? They're selling us stuff, a vision, an idea um, of how we look good, especially if we're just going to post that picture on TikTok or the gram and throw it away um, without actually helping us understand what it costs to make a garment. This is high skilled work. You know, we've done the analysis. It can take upwards of a hundred human hands, touch a piece of clothing before you get it. And this is true for whether it's a $5 t-shirt or a hundred dollar t-shirt. And so the thing that you have seen year over year is this downward decline in wages, right? So we're nowhere close to living wages, but often, and especially in the pandemic, a lot of our campaigns have seen fights for legally owed just minimum wage and severance, right? So how is it that this $3 trillion industry cannot even pay what's legally mandated in these countries, which is nowhere close to even a living wage. And it's because we have dehumanized this workforce, you know, and hence the word remake. You know, we started remake with this idea of remaking connections with who are the women. And I say women because it is predominantly women on the factory floor who make our clothes, who is she, what are her hopes and aspirations? And our hope with some of our short films and some of our campaigning is that we can somehow bring her back into our collective consciousness. You know, even the notion of sweatshops, it's, you know, there are jokes about it on sitcoms and it's become this thing where we somehow know in the shadowy recesses of our brain that, you know, people aren't treated right in the way most of our clothes come to us today, but we have become numb to that. I think the other thing that often gets forgotten in the climate conversation is the intersectionality of human rights and climate rights, right? There is no climate justice unless we're thinking about the very frontline people who are both grappling with wage theft and the impacts of climate, right? Think about a lot of our clothes today come from Bangladesh. So it's the very same woman who's dealing with air pollution and dumping in her community that's grappling with wage theft and dealing with, you know, floodings and other types of climatic events. And so I think for companies, it behooves them to talk up more of what they're doing on the environmental sustainability front and sort of brush away, you know, the lack of progress we've made when it comes to living wages. But I really am hopeful as I see more ambassadors in our community starting to connect the connect the dots, right? That there is no climate justice without human rights. And the two things really go hand in hand. One of the tricky, with, with larger brands, and I, I came upon you, I think I initially found you through your index because I I try to be more aware of this and where, but it's actually kind of contradictory because some of the brands that are fast fashion are, you know, have these sustainable sections, but the very word fast fashion, you know, the term you know, it, it feels like, am I just completely being marketed to here incorrectly? So help us understand what's actually, what progress you're seeing with some of these larger brands and how we can judge better. What, what tools do we need? 
Absolutely. And, you know, it's uh, great for me to hear that, you know, you Googled us, you found us through our sustainable brands directory, you know, much like a lot of the free educational workshops we do on college campuses and in universities and increasingly engaging even littler sustainability activists in middle schools and junior high. Um, The sustainability directory is sort of a way for us to make this information more accessible, right? People might Google, like, where do I get ethical underwear or what are some of the better brands? for me to buy a top or a pair of jeans and they land on our directory. I think the thing to understand is that, you know, there is no correlation between somehow a brand being more expensive and paying workers fairly. You know, I have certainly in my career seen sweatshops, whether it's looking behind the Made in Italy label or Made in LA, Made in United States or Made in the UK. You know, and so this idea that, oh, there are sweatshops, terribly far away places that are bringing us fast fashion. It's like, "Mm, actually there are sweatshops everywhere because of this asymmetry of power where fashion is currently enriching the few up top and basically dehumanizing this world workforce and that luxury brands are just as opaque when it comes to their living way living um, uh, wages commitments to that of high street brands so you know I think the luxury industry whether they think about animal rights environmental rights or human rights has a long way to go now you know there's the other question you ask me is, is fast fashion inherently a bad thing and you know I think we can all agree that if we are really making 100 billion units of clothes to clothe not even 8 billion people on the planet, and we're throwing most of that away within the first year of production, we're just making too much. And so this sort of overconsumption and making product a disposable good rather than something that's durable that we can wear over and over again is inherently unsustainable, right? And so for an average person who comes to us and says, how do I shop more responsibly? You know, well, the best thing you can do is to buy less, you know, which is why we, every summer, our community takes the no new clothes pledge, where we're just buying nothing to see how much money we save, what our carbon impact is. And we're really learning to have a new relationship with our closet. How many pieces do you actually need? What is an impulse buy? Can you wear something for 30 wears and that's when you commit to buying it rather than just buying it, wearing a little bit and throwing it away? So I think those are some of the individual habits of sort of normalizing rewear that we work on. But, you know, companies are not monolithic, right? And so even within fast fashion brands, there are times when they show leadership, for example, in supporting a particular piece of legislation we're pushing for to have better fair pay or climate justice in fashion. Or, you know, some of the European fast fashion brands are a little less leery when it comes to collective bargaining agreements or worker rights. And so we do try to applaud some of those inroads because for us, we think of sustainability as a journey, right? No end customer is perfect. No brand is perfect. But each of our individual little steps are going to add up to something that matters. And so for an average person who comes to a directory, no, it's not really meant to be a shopping tool. You know, it's to say, hmm, for some of the smaller ethical brands that you might find there and you want to buy from there, wonderful. But, you know, it's also a way for you to write to your favorite brand or see what active campaigns we might have against them for wage theft in their supply chain or for an environmental disaster. So you can write to them and say, hmm, I can't really shop with you till you address that. So in some ways, it's a campaigning tool as much as it's a way of finding, you know, the right ethical 
wardrobe. And, you know, one of the things we really try to get people to think about is, can I be a citizen first and a consumer second? Because buying your way into the most perfect, sustainable wardrobe isn't really going to make a dent on these wicked problems that fashion has when it comes to not paying people fairly or having such an outsized climate impact, what we have to do is frankly regulate, campaign, and really push for this industry to operate in a fairer and more just manner. What are you seeing as brands' um, response to consumer life? I'm trying to, to see if the brands are doing this because they feel that they have to because of potential regulation or because of consumer pressure, because we talk a lot about this, but our, we're still buying way too much. And we're still, you know, consumers haven't changed their behavior quite that much. Yeah, I see, you know, in, in doing this work, you have to be an optimist. And so I, I see change coming from a lot of different places, you know, in the pandemic, Brands canceled upwards of $40 billion in orders, right? These, this was product that was in process already made. It was headed on boats to the U.S. and uh, Western markets. The work had already been done. And what that meant was if brands just to shore up cash flow, they're worried, you know, malls are closed, e-commerce is sluggish, so don't want to accept the goods. What that meant was millions of workers were going to be out on the streets hungry and protesting for wages that is already legally owed to them. And so this was an example during a very dark time where our community really showed up. We had designers, we had models, we had celebrities, we had everyday customers, we had employees within these brands who all took part in our viral campaign to say, pay up, pay up, pay up. You absolutely have to pay up. You know, this is not the time during a global pandemic to not pay the people who have made this product. And all said and done, we recovered upwards of 22 billion in canceled orders through that blunt force pressure and campaigning. And so I'd say one of the tools in our toolbox absolutely is campaigning, but this was an example of a beautiful collaboration across so many different nodes of the fashion value chain, you know, whether customer to model to marketeer to coming together to say, this is not the time for us to forget garment makers. And so that sort of campaigns that we've been winning in the pandemic really gives me a lot of hope that especially with new media, there's ways for us to connect these dots to build accountability. The second is, you know, you are starting to see some interesting legislation in the pipeline. Here in California, the Garment Worker Protection Act, something we worked very hard to pass, became the law uh, January 1st. What this law now does is it abolishes peace rate and says workers have to make $14, which is a state's minimum wage instead of the $3, $5 take-home pay that they were making, which is ridiculous if you think of prices in the state of California. Um, and now we have a federal bill, the Fabric Act, that is looking to the labor protections that were built in uh, SB 62, the Garment Worker Protection Act in California, to see if we can do something similar for the 100,000 garment workers still here in the United States at a federal level. Um, but what that bill does is also have some of the machinery upgrade and skill development that this industry that has long suffered would need. And so, that's just, you know, one example of what's happening in the U.S. You have a mandatory human rights conversation happening in Europe. And so what you're starting to see is also policymakers recognizing that, especially when it comes to wage theft, environmental damage, 
what we're needing is more regulation to level the playing field. And, you know, for ethical, sustainable brands, we do see this next generation of more diverse designers, women, women, people of color who are building more ethical brands. This type of regulation is really welcome. You know, we had a lot of endorsers for the California bill and upwards of 100 companies doing the same with the federal bill because, it levels the playing field for them. You know, if you don't have regulation, it's very hard for you to compete, even if you're trying to do the right thing, when you have these consolidated, big, huge multinationals who are just not playing fair with the right rules. So, you know, we are certainly seeing campaigning absolutely works, especially when you use new and traditional forms of media. You know, policy reform definitely is something that we're excited to see more of. Um, and then the solidarity, you know, the solidarity between models and garment workers. Turns out a lot of them have something very similar in terms of short-term contracts and wage theft, you know, the kind of collaboration we've seen across civil society and trade unions, because none of us can do this alone. And then finally, some meta customer trends, you know, you see the secondhand market poised to be growing faster now than fast fashion. You see this normalization of rewear. And those are some of the trends that I think are quite uh, interesting from a market standpoint as well to say that, you know, could fashion be more of a service than a delivery good, something you rent, something you rewear, something you shop vintage or consignment. And I assume that the pandemic accelerated that aspect. I mean, certainly most of us aren't going out as much or we don't have the same, you know, faulty process in our heads. Well, I need something new because I wore that last week. You're just people's lifestyles have changed a lot and that kind of makes you review what you really need. Complete. I mean, so many people I know, you know, were doing a lot of decluttering, although you had goodwill and some of these poor stores say like, please don't dump all your product on the sidewalk. Like we don't have the bandwidth to deal with it. But yes, in this online Zoom world, you know, how many clothes do you actually want? You know, seeing, you know, the sale of tops is more than bottoms because people are not buying pants anymore. But I think one of the things we really try and teach our community is as you're thinking about how much you need, as you're freeing your brain and decluttering it from, you know, having to constantly just buy and keep up with trends and season, can we channel some of that openness to then fight for garment workers to make a better wage? Because this industry for too long has failed this generation of women. And especially as we start to transition to more automation, to, you know, keeping clothes in generation longer, a responsible transition from these manufacturing communities and making sure that the living wage conversation isn't forgotten is more urgent than ever. You know, in some ways, fashion is constantly preying on communities and countries where there is so much abject poverty that these are the, the only jobs available to women. And, you know, there is a, a connection both in terms of, you know, the minimum wage is either the government is keeping it artificially very low. It's nowhere close to a living wage, but often it's the only opportunity, especially if you're a young woman, you know, with the primary school education. I often think of garment makers as a sacrificial child, you know, that heads off to the big bad world of factories to leave uh, to send money home and to make sure that 
their brothers and sons and husbands have the money while they are working these long hours to the mental and physical detriment of their own bodies and minds um, in order to just eke out a living. And you know, I think a part of what we try to teach people is that it doesn't have to be this way. You know, we have a Professor Mark Anner on our board. He has long been an advocate and a researcher for labor rights who, you know, the math he's done is it's something like $1 on a $20 shirt to have jobs of dignity. And if only end customers knew that, it's it's not that much. Right. And I think also understanding it is a feminist issue as well is. This is completely, you know, a feminist issue of our time. And, you know, there's so many ways to, to, to make that clear. We know that women's wear is what keeps this industry profitable, right? We know that fashion is marketed through women. And so it's us who are marketing it. It's us who are buying it. But it's also us as women who are making it. And so, so much of what we try to do is to move our community away from the faux feminism of, you know, a slogan T that says, you know, women's rights is human rights. And it's like, okay, but if the active worker who made that t-shirt is not making a living wage and is not living a life of dignity, then what does your slogan T actually say, you know? And one of the things outside of the wage conversation that's often hidden is that because of the pressure cooker situation with which fast fashion and ultra fast fashion is made, right? You're basically putting in orders based on what sells, what color, what design. So you're shrinking lead time, you're shrinking forecasting, that it creates a lot of gender-based violence in supply chains. You're starting to see more of unions pick up on this conversation and try and get people to understand. Getting something very cheap and very fast also means that she is being physically and perhaps sexually assaulted in the factory or in her community. And that this work starts to take a very gendered, dangerous lens, especially when it's a lot of women on the factory floor and everyone's supervisor and up is male. Is that because of the pressure to just work long hours and produce, 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 and then it kind of becomes more violent? Yes. So it, a lot of it has to do with, you know, the, the piece rate system and how incentives are tied to how quickly you can move product. Um, and, you know, then you are working factories round the clock because you also have this instability of orders, right? Little batches coming in and then you're trying to see what sells. And then based on that, going back to say, make more of this or less of that. And so all of this chasing of trends and making things very cheap and getting them to us very quickly has a lot of human impact on the other end. And part of what we're trying to thread the needle is for people to understand, you know, what does your cheap t-shirt really say about you? Well, likely that, you know, a woman was yelled at, maybe abused and couldn't put two meals on the table. And that's why it comes to you so cheap and so fast. What is the responsibility, I guess that's a big word, of designers, fashion magazines, I, this this notion of style and trends and trends and trends that they're they they're completely built on that. 
You know, I often think of these issues as shared responsibility, right? On the supply chain side, for example, there's been a lot of finger pointing, which just leads to inertia, right? So, you know, brands will tell you, well, unless the customers are showing us at point of sale, they care about this, we're not going to do anything. And governments will say, well, we are just beholden to the brands. And manufacturers will say, well, you know, we are getting pushed down to the last penny, so we can't do anything. And the truth is the entire system needs an overhaul, right? Right. And I think similarly, one of the things for those of us who are more on the underbelly of fashion, working on the supply chain side, have often been removed from the glitz and glamour of, you know, we're just walking into New York Fashion Week and think about Milan and Paris and sort of that noise and glitz of glamour fashion is never making a connection to, well, how is any of these beautiful creations actually made. Um, and, you know, the the high fashion and the luxury brands really do set a lot of this, how many seasons do we have now? How many trends are we chasing? You know, how many things are we going to make just for the sake of making? And certainly, you know, I'm recently reading the Anna Wintour biography and just thinking about like the history of what, of, of Vogue's legacy here. But in some ways, a lot of the the new media has sort of heightened this chase for cheap and more. You know, TikTok, I look at the TikTok halls and feel physically ill or Instagram. And so, you know, media certainly has a responsibility. You think about the body dysmorphia and the ways that in fashion makes young people feel in terms of you're supposed to look a certain way, anorexic really, and, 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 you know, wear so many things. And once you wear it, it's no longer fashionable. And that's really where, you know, we do need designers who are thinking about adaptive clothing and clothing that can grow with the changes in your body and, and durability being stylish again, right? Style, and trends is not the same thing. And that's where the people sort of setting the vision for fashion really should have more skin in the game. Uh, and, you know, I think from a celebrity standpoint, you have a few celebrities out there, you know, Billie Eilish famously wears, you know, secondhand on the red carpet. We have actress Nat Kelly, who every year takes the No New Clothes Pledge along with our community and for our community to look up at this beautiful young woman who they so aspire to be like, to show what her closet is like and how she's only shopping secondhand matters. But you know, a lot of the big celebrities will tell us no thank you because so much of their money comes from product placement and these brand relationships. And so if you follow the money, it's very hard to get the red carpet or fashion week or any of these folks to not keep making more. And so this is something I sit with, like, how do you make rewear fashionable and how do you make it abjectly stupid to have this volume of waste uh, glamorized in the fashion industry it really is stupid uh one of the things you've written about is how donating clothes is not as helpful as we tend to think it is yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because you know we hear this a lot almost like a license to keep buying 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 right for people to say look I do the right thing I'm a good person I take my clothes and I dump them off to my local charity shop or Goodwill and so now I have a license to buy more and so I think there's sort of a lot to debunk there right the average American throws away 75 pounds of textile and clothing a year and you know 
knowing that most of our clothes today are made of fossil fuel and plastic, it's to understand that that clothing, whether you want it or not, is going to be sitting in landfills, bleaching into our oceans and soil for a very long time. And so often the conversation has to start more point of sale in terms of how much do you want? How long are you going to wear this? Can you rock it over and over again? Rather than thinking, you know, hmm, as long as I donate it, I'm all good. You know, today, because of how much we make and how much we're throwing it away, a lot of the charity shops, the goodwills of the world are just overwhelmed with what people are throwing out. You know, a lot of these secondhand stores don't really have the bandwidth or the technical skills to mend anything. So if there's a zipper broken or snagged or a button missing, like odds are it's going to end up in Ghana, you know. And so I think for people to really understand that even if you donate, the odds of that ending up in a landfill are so high that it's better for you to actually buy less is something that's really important for people to understand. You know, clothing is one of the fastest growing categories of waste to landfill globally. And um, the Orr Foundation does some wonderful work. You know, you want to take a look at just the images and images of clothes that pile up and clog and destroy the local Ghana economy. You know, it's a, it's, I think once we see it, it's hard to unsee it and to recognize that we just have to stop buying so much. And whether you donate it or not, odds are much like recycling, it's going to end up in the trash. I just want to step back. And was there a moment when this crystallized for you that this was going to be your path? So I am Pakistani American, and I think my heritage has a lot to do with this. You know, I grew up in Karachi, where my grandfather used to run clothing factories. And so early on, I had the sensibility of understanding that this was going to be a way to lift a generation of women from my part of the world out of poverty. And then, you know, when the trade agreements and NAFTA and suddenly you started to see this flight to rock bottom wages, that dream sort of evaporated. And so for me, this fight is very personal. I often talk about this is not a job, just a career. It's my life calling because being, to your point, in a state of privilege now and being in the United States, it's a way for me to connect the dots back to the global south and and for us to not forget how much we've extracted in terms of labor and resources from that part of the world. And And what is fashion's responsibility? So I think, you know, being Pakistani plays a big role in that. I think being a woman plays a big role in that. You know, at Remake, we're an all-women team. And a lot of the ambassadors who join as activists in our community are also women. And so I really do think this is a way for those of us who want a better future. You know, I have children now. What I want to leave for them, it's a way to feel like you're active contributing rather than just wringing your hands on the sideline and, and waiting for this train wreck to come. Well, I learned a lot from that discussion and I hope you did too. Let's work together to avoid that train wreck. Find out more about Remake and its current campaigns at remake.world or follow them on social at Remake Our World. And if you enjoyed this podcast, a rating or review on Apple really will help us grow. Or head over to Substack and subscribe, it is free, to my weekly update for early access to episodes, transcripts, and other extras at betterangels.substack.com. Thanks for joining us and see you next week.